0: we are here at 11fs headquarters in london we work for episode 30 of blockchain insider today we bring you the fallout from the crypto bloodbath last week shell invests in a startup called apply blockchain and we have an interview with the ceo of bitflyer yuzu Kano. and now on with the show Alrighty, uh, before we get to the news, uh, I'm back with Colin G. Platt. Colin G. Platt, give me the update. Are you near a field?
1: I am definitely near a field. I uh, I have been running around trying to do paperwork in France, and I'm happily back next to my field.
0: You are near field communicating um, for the payments geeks amongst you. That one was just for you. Um, All right, so uh, (laughs) I, I impressed myself with how nerdy that joke was uh colin uh what's been happening in your week have, have you been living the dream in france have you been uh living the crypto dream
1: uh yeah simon's been giving me a hard time because uh the the french bureaucracy is actually a thing i thought it was a legend it is much worse than i ever thought
0: uh vive la bureaucracy huh um <laughs> all right say it like you know how to speak french god these smart people with their multilingual skills um all right before we get into the news i need to remind listeners that today's episode of blockchain insider is brought to you by corda corda is an open source blockchain platform that allows businesses to transact directly and in strict privacy using smart contracts next to a field if they wish Uh, corda enables complex transactions using real assets and legally binding agreements without the need for a trusted intermediary caught as the result of a collaborative effort led by r3 and over 160 of the world's largest banks and tech partners it's ready to build on today and people are already deploying this stuff So you can transform your business um, by, and you can learn more by going to Corda.net. And also, um, it looks like CordaCon is happening in Tokyo on March the 7th. So you can uh, contact events at r3.com for more information. So you could see all sorts at CordaCon, hey, Colin?
1: Yeah, definitely. If if you do show up uh, and you come from the show, make sure you uh, wear a pink unicorn outfit.
0: Uh oh, well, I know mr uh, somebody who shall remain nameless um did did that at a recent eleven f s after dark so um <laughs> whoever those people are um it seems like it's all happening in enterprise land, but before we get to enterprise blockchain stuff um the price is is uh, down 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 in crypto land Colin the bloodbath happened last week so so what's happening
1: uh well I, I think um bitcoin land is is going through a few different things um and it has taken the rest of the cryptocurrency world with it, um, we're going to talk a bit more about regulations and, and how those happen in, in just a minute. Um, but there's a couple of really interesting articles in that we saw, um, one from the Evening Standard that speculated that people are selling Bitcoin for gold. Uh, God knows why you would want to get rid of your, your digital gold for real world gold. But hey, Evening Standard thinks people are doing it. Uh, we were talking before the show, I actually saw a place where you could physically buy gold. So maybe they're going there. Um, criminals aren't using it anymore, which to me is one of the main reasons to use Bitcoin. Uh, not that I'm a criminal, but uh, it does work quite well. And they're trying to find other things. So we'll see if that positively impacts some of the, the privacy focused coins, things like Monero, Dash, um, Zcash or Zcash. Um, but uh, all of this has kind of come to, uh, people have been talking for a long time. Is Bitcoin sustainable? And um, so far the prices seem to have said, Maybe they weren't. Um, Maybe they'll go back up. Uh, On the positive side, um, I mean, the exchanges seem to be having a great time. We saw a really interesting article from Recode about Coinbase. Um, Apparently, they're they're making a billion dollars in revenue this last year. So right on, guys at Coinbase.
0: Yeah, well done, guys at Coinbase.
1: Yeah. Come on the show and tell us more about it. Uh, We're going to hear later today from the guys at Bitflyer, which is an even bigger exchange. Um, And there's some cool technology stuff like uh, Lightning Network turned on in in new tests this last week and SegWit transactions. We talked a lot about SegWit earlier um, in 2017. Uh, The transactions are now covering 20% 20 of the blocks or 20% of the transaction in the blocks, um, which is a really cool thing. And blocks are actually getting much larger. Uh, as a result. So it's starting to work.
0: So it's interesting that we find ourselves in this position where uh, the tech is finally finally starting to see some promise in terms of its actual upgrades just as the price crashes. Um, there's there's more than a hint of irony there. Although the price crash was sudden and then it seems to have bumbled around, maybe fallen a bit more, maybe fallen a bit more and maybe it's on a long road back to to some base, maybe it comes back. Um, but to me the far more interesting stories are those two stories. Um, story number one from Recode about uh, Coinbase you know, the exchanges are the ones that have done well here. They've bucked a serious amount of revenue as everybody's rushed in and story number two is actually bitcoin scaling potential solutions around uh, segwit and lightning network that we've talked about for many episodes in the past could now finally be becoming a thing. And so um, all of the investment that's moved in could actually be building out this ecosystem to be something that's sustainable um, or at least on its way to being that. And,
1: and I think there's some really interesting points that you made in there. And um, a while ago, Union Square Ventures had come out with a, with a blog, um, and you can look it up, talking about fat protocols where they said, all the value is going to be in the cryptocurrency itself. Um, whereas we're seeing companies like exchanges Um, companies like Bitmain that produces a lot of the Bitcoin miners. Uh, These are the guys that, uh, figuratively speaking, are selling uh, spades into the gold rush, and they're making money hand over fist. And it's not value goes up or down based off of what people are thinking. It is actual revenue in the doors uh, that pays employees. So um, I would say, from my point of view, that's very much debunked. And there is a ton of value in running a business on top of these things.
0: What's this R word you use? And where do I read about that in a white paper, this revenue thing?
1: (laughs) Well, don't ask a VC, I guess, especially one not not investing in ICOs.
0: That's that's the truth. Um, All right. So... um I guess the the short answer to uh, why the uh, why the prices appear to be down is because regulation. There's a lot going on here. Um, there's there's the SEC explaining uh, an awful lot. So there's a couple of things from sec.gov. There's a joint statement by the SEC and the CFTC regarding virtual currency enforcement actions, um, and they also made some remarks at the Securities Regulation Institute. So uh, what's, what's going on with those two, Colin?
1: Just before we get started on that, can we, call it, can we start calling this sexplaining?
0: Uh, sex <laughs> explaining. <laughs> when, when the SEC explains, it's sexplains
1: when, when it explains anything to blockchain people. So one of the really big headlines that people were speculating on early in 2017 was ETFs around Bitcoin, Ether, other things. Um, basically, these are funds uh, that, as the name uh, stands for, exchange-traded funds. You can buy and sell these on a regulated exchange, And they happen to track something else. So uh, people may have invested in these that track the Dow Jones or the FTSE 100 or the Nikkei 225 or bonds or anything else. Um, Some people said, well, let's try to put these together so we can track the price of Bitcoin. Uh, The SEC, unlike futures with the CFTC, has a lot of say in these, and they've turned it down on multiple occasions, including very recently. And they put out exactly why they've turned this down um, in, in an article that Coinbase picked up. Um, the other thing that was quite interesting is um, Jay Clayton, who's the, the commissioner at the, the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, mm-hmm. put out a statement about, um, A, ICOs are something that they're worried about, and people need to be very concerned about um, potential enforcement action, meaning they are going to come and fine or potentially put people in jail if this continues. Um, So if you're doing any of these things, um, they've made it very clear there is no gray area. And the other thing, which I thought was uh, a really brilliant move, is the SEC has come out and said, not only is the ICO the problem, but these lawyers that are saying, yeah, okay, you know, it all depends, but uh, if you give us money, we'll just kind of sign it off enough that we're not really liable they said actually you are the problem and we'll come after you as well you should know better um i think it's positive
0: so that's interesting that the SEC is pushing back against legal jujitsu um, or judo moves of trying to um, talk about how an asset can be one thing, but then it's something else. I, I do think there's a genuine innovation in some parts of uh, the the crypto assets and ICO space, but it's actually extremely rare. And so Ernst and Young put out a report that some of you may have seen uh, come out in the recent week talking about how of the $3.7 billion raised in ICOs, more than 10% of that may have been stolen or laundered in some way uh that's a pretty gigantic figure and you can see why when regulators look at that they go ah this is a problem we need to deal with this uh and if you're behaving like idiots the regulator is going to bitch slap you like stop it just stop being an idiot. Um, so like there's, uh, but then not everybody is behaving like an idiot. I I do think there are some really good examples out there of people who are dealing with new technology in new ways that are uh, trying to take their fiduciary responsibility seriously. Um, that uh, are looking at something that could be a new type of asset class when you are uh, potentially looking at uh, computing resources being bought sold and traded um at a distance in a private way there are some nuances about how you treat that potential future asset class when you're looking at um, tokenizing alternative asset classes such as real estate art wine diamonds there's a whole bunch of stuff that's complex there that's difficult that we need to engage with but what what bothers me is i don't think we have a shared language so what you can see the regulators kind of saying is look there's two things one there's some obvious stupidity going on here and we're going to backwardsly enforce that so the regulator is coming the regulator is coming but two there's possibly some innovation here and what we don't want is legal firms and law firms giving you um, answers that are legal jujitsu. What we want is to engage. And I think the uh, way an industry could uh, do that more uh, more formally is by looking at people who've done it well in, in the past uh, and it's some of the ones that... Uh, are often named as having done it well are folks like Filecoin? there are many many others who i'm forgetting that aren't coming to my head immediately so if you've done one and i'm not thinking of you i'm sorry um you know just email podcast 11fs.com and let our, our production team deal with that sorry pet sorry uh sorry laura but to me like it was no surprise that the regulator was going to come and do this at some point um and i guess uh look it's not just in in the sec that that's happening you've got china doing this stuff as well um so there's a story in Coindesk where China moves to crack down on digital currency pyramid schemes. Like the, the interesting thing about the nature of an ICO is it is default it defaults to global but regulators are national um, and there are some interesting things about if you're going to offer a security on an international basis then you need a prospectus for that sort of thing like there's, there's all of these things that um, if you are raising 100 million dollars, 50 million dollars that you can afford to do properly um, but knowing what you need to do properly and following a rule book for that and knowing what the language is I think is really really important uh, to when you're dealing with investors money and when you're dealing with large amounts of money uh, and i think historically it's great that um there's an alternatives to to vcs from a funding perspective it's great that vc isn't the only way that a new and exciting project can raise money but if you're going to have an alternative it's not all just going to be easy and i'm going to raise this invisible crypto funny money and i'm off to the races and i can take that money because it's on the table it's actually no you have to do your homework and, and 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 that doesn't surprise me at all
1: to me, what I always find really fascinating and, and not in a positive or a negative way, um, but is the amount of money that people are trying to put into these um, ICOs or, or token sales or anything else. I mean, um, the funds that the ICOs, the token sales that have tried to do things correctly and follow all the KYC procedures generally have found very different sources of money than the ones that haven't. Um, and I, I find that particular trend... Um, very difficult to comprehend at its face value for any um, legitimate reason. I've heard lots of speculation, but I, it's it's an interesting trend, and I hope somebody puts some academic research into why it happens. Completely.
0: Uh, so, like, there's a whole bunch of... Uh, interesting studies that's been done i briefly mentioned the ernst and young uh study that came out recently that looked at more than uh 10 percent uh of uh value that's been of the 3.7 that's been 3.7 billion that's been invested has been stolen but they also talk about um smart contracts uh code of an ico project can turn contains terms not explicitly disclosed to investors as a result the value of tokens is diluted beyond Beyond what you think you're investing in. So you get text for investors and code that actually operate differently. So like that sort of behavior is the sort of thing that you can see is nuanced, is new. When you're offering a, a pro- product before, you'd typically be off- offering something that was existing in a contract and would exist in its legal terms. So what you read in the legal terms was what you were buying. Now you're buying something that would be executed in, in code uh, in, in a token sale. So that code needs to match the text. So h- how do we make sure that things like that happen some really interesting nuances like that that we really need to to pick through uh, and i think it can't be the case that um somebody launches a new coin all the pump and dump groups wait for it to be launched on uh, an, on an exchange the coin gets pumped and the coin gets dumped that cannot be this market for much longer it has to be much more what is web 3.0 and and how do we provide that kite mark to uh, potential investors, uh, who may be single-family officers, who may be institutions that want to get into the crypto markets, that see this as an area of potential growth and volatility and excitement, but we bring some light into this situation. Um, and and that's, that's when you know. So uh, um, I'm foreshadowing the interview we do with Bitflyer later, but um, in, in the interview with Yuzo, uh, the CEO of Bitflyer, he talks about how in Japan they have a whitelist of ICOs and tokens that have gone through an accreditation process. That's an interesting idea. That whitelist, that accreditation, that kite mark idea, I think is generally a good one to prevent this sort of thing.
1: Yeah, and and can I just say, like from an investment banking point of view, like the... There was a lot of problems way back in the day, 100 years ago, even less than that, um, where people were talking about this in the equities markets, um, and the the bubble in the 1920s is very famous uh, for bringing that, and when that all crashed down, we had the the Great Depression. Um, Eventually, what, what investment banks ended up doing, and I think goes to your point about pump and dumps, is figuring out not only which projects are good and bad or which companies are good and bad but which investors are going to do a pump and dump and make sure that just because they'll easily give you money you don't necessarily give them the tools to do this Um, and this is something that i think is a hand in hand between exchanges and companies trying to do this they need to sit down and say right who are the good investors that aren't just trying to flip my coin on day one who are the ones that are actually interested in the project and will stick with me as a vc would stick with me which may be five to ten years Um, It just hasn't matured yet. Whether it happens or not, I don't know. Um, But that's an interesting transition, actually, into the next thing we want to talk about within regulation, Simon. Um, You and I both used to work at banks. Um, Did they have any rules about Bitcoin when you worked at a bank, uh, what you could or couldn't do?
0: Not that I'm aware of. No, I don't think so.
1: I felt it was the same way. Uh, The next story we had from Bloomberg, Nordea apparently uh, has actually banned all uh, employees as of the end of this month, uh, from trading...
0: As the end of February. End of February. So
1: you still have a window. So get out there and do it, no damn To They've stopped them from trading cryptocurrencies. So I guess, from my understanding, is if they've had something, that's fine. They're not going to make them dump everything, but they can't do anything new on it, um, which... Seems like a very um, uh, strict, stringent way to do it, uh, which may be good, may be bad, but it is interesting to see that that's starting to come to light. And I know a lot of people have been discussing this exact theme
0: yeah it's interesting um I think there's uh, a fear that the regulators are coming uh, from the bank's perspective, which actually for an industry that probably needs to come into the light that needs the support of the banking sector more than ever is really discouraging because the banks are, are are a bit like the sand people in Star Wars they scare easily uh, so we we kind of need uh the the banks to be Trying to help people figure out how to come into the light, rather than move to the dark side by just banning everything, which is which is easy but lazy. Um, but uh, what, what's happening here, I guess, is uh, is an interesting one. That yes, you're allowed to keep holding your coins, but um, you're not allowed to buy any new ones. There has been for some time, uh, I'm aware of anyways, that senior managers um, and executives in banks uh, have to disclose any large shareholdings they have um, to prevent conflicts of interest. And that sort of thing, I can completely understand that, that you're preventing conflicts of interest. Um, I don't get why a junior employee holding a couple of Bitcoin is a problem. Um, I think that's overly draconian. It's one, it strikes, smacks me as one of those stupid things like uh, you know, y- we're going to spy on every uh, in- website you go to on your personal mobile device because we're slightly worried about you saying something stupid at some point whilst you're in a building. You know, it's like there's an overreach that's well-intended Um, but from a compliance department that is trying to read mood music from regulators right now, which is extremely negative in its appearance, uh, uh, but actually probably quite sensible in its intent. Uh, so so there's the Nordea piece. And then lastly on this regulation piece, um, outside of the banks, is what's been happening, as you mentioned, in the equities market. So we saw Kodak got a massive share price bump. Um, we've seen a number of companies in the past week just announce they're doing blockchain now, woohoo, and share price bump. And the SEC has also kind of raised their eyebrows at that and said, come on, guys, that's bullshit. Like, stop it.
1: Uh, I I think Jay Clayton actually said in his speech he wants to stop that before uh, Blockchain R Us comes out, uh, obviously referring to the uh, endangered Toys R Us company in the U.S. (laughs) Uh, There there was another company I I saw in Canada that had just done this uh, this last week. It's pretty clear what they're trying to do. The company's results aren't great. It distracts investors.
0: (laughs) Hey, I'm surprised Blockbuster haven't just embraced the block in the name already and just gone, hey, we're, we're dropping the buster. We're now the Blockbuster bargain prices of crypto. You know, like just uh, get your videos on a blockchain, whatever else. It's screw you, Netflix.
1: We should ask our social media people if we should put a second blockchain in Blockchain Insider. Maybe that'll pump up the, the viewership.
0: Blockchain Insider, now brought to you by blockchain. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Um, so speaking of all things blockchains, if you're curious about Neo, uh, the so-called Ethereum of China, they're holding a developer conference in San Francisco at the Intercontinental uh, on the 30th and 31st of January. Uh, the first uh, 50 listeners of Blockchain Insider can get an exclusive 30% discount on tickets by entering the code INSIDE, that's INSI ide um, by going to devcon.neo.org to find out more and to register all right changing gears colin um, there's a conversation i had with the ceo of applied blockchain uh, who just got a boost from shell Royal Dutch Shell, the uh, oil company made an investment into a uk startup so let's hear from Addy now we're here with Addy from Applied Blockchain. Addy, how are you, sir? Yeah, excellent. Very good. Glad to have you on the show at long last. Um, so, Addy, you've been around for some time in the blockchain space with Applied Blockchain, but you've got some big news this week. It looks like Royal Dutch Shell, the oil company, have invested in you. So, tell us a little bit about who Applied Blockchain are.
2: Yeah, so Applied Blockchain is a company that builds solutions using blockchain technology. Um, you're right, we've been around for a while, so we've been doing this for almost three years now. Uh, We've got a range of clients, about 50-50 split between startups and corporates. Um, And both the startups and the corporates cut across a number of different industries. So they're paying for
0: your engineering knowledge in blockchain tech stacks. So you would build on Ethereum or open source protocols or or any of the others
2: natively? That's right, yeah. We build on top of open source, uh, open blockchain platforms. Um, And we've also got some reusable assets of our own that we bring into the projects just to speed things up. Um, and yeah, in general, we've got a team, almost 20 guys sitting in uh, Canary Wharf in level 39. Uh, so a real team of blockchain experts that have done quite a few projects now and, and ready to go on some more.
0: Sounds like fun. So why did Shell invest in you? What's, what's the partnership there looking like?
2: Yeah, so we've been working with Shell for a while. Um, Shell um, was looking around at blockchain, um, realized that this is actually a technology that's going to make a difference for them, that's going to help them in, in lots of different areas. Um, then I think they were looking for, for partners and trying to understand who is best to work with. Uh, so they went about it, I think, in quite a smart way. Uh, they they ran a competition and they actually um, uh, initiated a competition for a bunch of us, uh, different blockchain companies uh, around the globe. And we, all, we were all uh, tasked to build the same thing. Uh, spent two months uh, with a team building, having our code reviewed, having the team uh, uh, looked at Um, and uh, at the end of the day, they they tested everything that we did, uh, and we we won the competition.
0: Lovely. I like that approach of doing a competition instead of uh, being sold to, so that you could be sold to by a very large IT vendor, for instance, who will say, hey, we'll do this POC for free with you so long as you use us forever, Um, whereas actually doing a competition, uh, a lot of smaller, more talented companies might might do. So uh, what was the competition for, and, and what do you think was, what made you guys stand out?
2: Yeah, so Shell did something really smart, I think. They weren't sure which company to work with. There's a bunch of new companies in the space, and none of us had much of a track record at the time. So they ran a competition. They gave us all the same spec, and we all deployed teams to actually build the same thing. And then they looked at how we understood their business, how well we coded, how well we used blockchain technology. So they actually assessed what was built, and then they selected a winner out of that who then who then they chose to invest in and start a very large project with
0: yeah well you get the competitive juices flowing and you want to get going uh adi it's short slot with with just you and i today so where can people find out more about you and what it is you do at apply blockchain
2: yeah applyblockchain.com um and and you can come and check out the site uh see see the customers we've worked with and just reach out to us
0: look forward to it all right Addy, thanks for being on the show thank you Great. So lots happening in the enterprise space, Colin. Um, I guess you've been quite close to uh, trading in the past and you can see energy is a form of trading. Oil companies are counterparties to trading. Do you see that um, stuff like uh, DLT on the enterprise side could could help in the uh, energy markets at all?
1: I I think within the the trading side, one of the things that I I was always talking about was um, when I worked at a bank – Lots of commodities uh, trade very quickly. There's lots that are very slow, like oil or like gold. Um, but things like electricity move quicker than a settlement cycle. Um, it it kind of makes sense um, if you could push these things through and get paid quicker, be able to track them across multiple jurisdictions. I mean, it's not without its problems, but um, I, I have a lot of time for Addy. I think he's a great guy and blockchain is a, is a fantastic company that I've had the pleasure of uh, following for a little while now. Um, so congratulations to those guys for working with Shell um, and, and getting more investment, uh, so well deserved. Um, if anybody can figure it out, I think these guys have a very good chance and uh, congratulations again to them.
0: Yeah, well done, Addy. Um, I think uh, you've said a couple of times uh, on the show that uh, 2018 might be the year of enterprise. Uh, next story up um, has the most uh, enterprise-y feel of, of, I think, any of the stories we cover this week. So this is uh, IBM and Marisk form a, uh, uh, Maersk? I can never say their name. The shipping company um, formed a new company for international cargo. Um, and this is this comes to us from Bloomberg Business. So the joint venture Uh, expects shippers port and ports to use the new service and they're targeting the second half of 2018 for a rollout and uh yeah so this one looks like uh there's going to be real things happening uh, in the blockchain space at long last very vague press release they think they can lower the cost of global trade but they don't really say how any of this works what it is what the value prop is um any thoughts on this one colin
1: well, I mean, there's there's obviously ways you can do this. Um, and and I think I've disclosed on the show before, I am advising a company that is looking at um, supply chain within the DLT space. a um, Lots of people have talked about just the paperwork. And obviously, a, a big part of blockchains is how can we reduce reconciliation? So surely there is something in there. Um, I, I'm not close enough to know about how... Um, global trade works in the day-to-day, but I can't imagine that getting somebody to sign paper on and off a ship is is really your big cost. Now, there's the the insurance and the payment side, which perhaps these things could come into. Um, As you said, we don't have tons of details. Uh, The question is what's in the blocks here, Uh, if it's payments, if it's insurance, uh, is a good question. But uh, from what we've seen previously from IBM, Uh, It doesn't really explicit that there, there is money moving inside this, so it's probably just how can we work with a big company, how can we set up something and have an internal startup because companies love to have their internal joint venture startups because you tell me.
0: No, I don't think it's it's that simple um i think look the the end to end workflow of trade finance at, at the simplest level is you've got buyer seller buyer's bank seller's bank, and what happens is every, there's about maybe twelve to fifteen steps in a trade and everybody sends Uh, sort of paper documents to everybody at each one of those 12 to 15 steps. So FedEx are sending uh, a a packet of documents at least 12 to 15 times. So when I was looking at this um, when I worked at a bank, the estimated cost to uh, the industry on an annual basis is between 40 and 50 billion US dollars on postage alone. Um, That's pretty inefficient. Um, And then you've got the fact that the error rate is around 4 to 5%. So of the $2 trillion of global trade, you've got a 4 to 5% error rate of things going wrong. That's, that's just somebody picking up the wrong piece of paper, losing a piece of paper. So an end-to-end workflow that's automated across the counterparties that's digital, in theory, starts to resolve that. But we know that these big enterprise things can be painful and And uh,
1: Don't get me wrong. I think moving away from post, uh, there is this great technology that I'm going to start um, selling to all these big enterprises that are looking into it. It's called Email. Um, you don't have to pay for this postage. Uh, and it happens to be decentralized. No, the problem um, with it, to me, the telling thing, I, I hear what you're saying. The telling thing for me here is at the last line, the last sentence that says the blockchain software developed by the new company will run on IBM's cloud. That's not a blockchain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. run, run a cloud database. No, no, Do it. it's, all it's your not. Steps it's... In. I absolutely agree. Yeah. Run a database. A run
0: a cloud database with clever with clever PKI to drive the workflow. They happen to be using Hyperledger for that, which is a slow way of doing it. But yeah, really, what they're doing is they've got a workflow and they're using multi-sig to move that workflow forward through through multiple counterparties in a complex transaction. Um, but they're not the only ones at it. Um, don't, certainly, um, there's a story here from City AM where ING, uh, Sockgen, and Louis Dreyfus which just sounds like some dude, have put soybean on the blockchain. So um, if you like uh, soybeans you should be very very happy about that for the um, first agricultural commodity trade so um, this is uh, kind of a platform from SockGen um, which is actually a joint project between ING and SockGen called Easy Trading Connect Um, and whilst there's been a lot of pilots uh, this one is is a real transaction so 60,000 tons are actually being traded Uh, it seems like um, since I don't know late 2016 people have been doing a transaction uh, the real question with enterprise is not can you do a transaction it's can you do all of your transactions and can you do them at scale. Uh, I, I know the guy is at um, TradeStream they're a fintech startup. And what they do is they actually take the paper documents and help you uh, OCR the paper documents in trade finance and then run a workflow internally so that you're dealing with the outside world, which may live in paper, but you're dealing with the inside world um, in a purely digital way. I think what we need to think about much more is what are those fintech companies that connect the world of trade finance and enterprise? To the existing world of paper, because not everybody's going to adopt paper tomorrow, and that's why I think a lot of these pilots have, have uh, stalled to a certain degree.
1: I, I, one thing I just want to say about this is calling it easy trade connect, uh, etc. I wonder when this press statement came out if there was a, if there was a big pump in Ethereum Classic. <laughs> also has that as a ticker. So people that are using Ethereum Classic
0: for soybean. Uh.
1: <laughs> hey, if you announce if you it's a partnership with SockGen on soybeans. Surely your your price would go up.
0: Hey, that's that's uh, how to how to troll the ETC crowd by Colin G. Platt. Some GSAS for you live and in color. Um, all right, next story, Colin. Swift, the interbank network, the ones that Ripple are enemies of and, and widely attacking and, and sort of trying to bring down, um, have signed an agreement with seven CSDs to explore blockchain for post-trade. If any story was in your wheelhouse, Colin, uh, this one's in your wheelhouse. What's going on here?
1: it would be about very wonky market infrastructure stuff like a CSD or a, a central securities depository. So um, Swift, he is very famous for um, backending a lot of payments. Uh, they also back-end the, the movement of securities between banks and CSDs and clearing houses that sit behind exchanges. Uh, you may not have noticed that as much because uh, I, I don't think Ripple was aware of it and didn't say how slow that was. Um, so... They put together a working group that's been in existence for the better part of a year now, uh, informally. And um, several clearinghouses stretching from the United States to Switzerland, uh, to South America, Russia, uh, and the Middle East have said, we want to get together, we want to look at how this technology can can work. They signed a uh, a Memorandum of Understanding, so whoopee, uh, they're going to look at something. Uh, What was really interesting at the end of this article is they said... Um, Swift has already decided that their ISO standard of uh, 20, is going to be what they're going to decide to do. It's just how do you uh, plug this into a blockchain? I think there is a ton of opportunity for CSDs. Uh, There's a ton of threats coming down the the, uh, road for CSDs as and when, um, I won't call them ICOs, but as and when tokens start to represent real financial contracts, I hope they do a bit more than window dressing like this
0: window dressing like this, uh, that's an interesting point. So, um, Swift are going to sign an MOU with some people to maybe use a standard they already have and think about if blockchain works with that standard they already have. Uh, I think there's a really interesting question about, uh, as you say, security, so everything from bonds to the major stocks um, and, and, and everything that, that, that gets traded, the, the some of the key assets in the world, uh, that move via Swift. So, any any payment that's settled between banks internationally, all those CSDs who, who 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 are kind of key to to a lot of those trades and to managing collateral and risk and so on. That piece could be really crucial and could be made really efficient. And the fact that, oh, well, we've already got this standard, uh, it feels lazy um, the fact that we are going to sign a memorandum of understanding feels like window dressing. Um, it's innovation theater. Um, we, we talk about that a lot on FinTech Insider, uh, but there's a real opportunity here. Like interoperability between central securities depositories could be really significant for the banking industry. Um, regulators have been pushing from Dodd-Frank to Mifid to Amir. Uh, there's a real push for transparency. There's a real push for fee transparency and Mifid. There's a real push for people to understand what is the underlying asset? What does the investor actually hold and own? Um, does the investor know what they're getting from for the value for money? Does a pension fund know what it's getting in terms of value for money? Chances are it doesn't. So if CSDs could be a part of this, they're a crucial part of infrastructure. SWIFT is a crucial part of infrastructure. They could make a real difference. They could reduce costs for the entire industry, for the banks. They could reduce costs for the buy side. They could help meet regulation. Like the benefits for this in terms of some of the critical path things that are happening in the industry could be really significant to see this damp squib of a press release is disappointing
1: yeah i echo every single one of your comments and i i I would encourage anybody that works for any of these companies or swift to take a good hard look and say well what are the challenges what are the threats out there where is our opportunity and let's not try to you know come up with a great press release with some other small csds and swift Let's actually get out and put a product in the market that leverages something else. And hey, the idea of banking a cryptocurrency as a CSD isn't a stupid idea. It's actually maybe a really big opportunity that could lead to the future of your business.
0: Yeah, and it's often easier to innovate with growth than it is to try and change an old market with lots of counterparties. And and whilst... Uh, that seems like oh well but those th- that market's small and thinly traded yes yeah, so is every market when it starts I mean like where does growth come from people invent new things and then eventually they look big enough to do something with and you try and cluge it into your existing systems and wonder why you didn't win the work and some new supplier came along and won the work instead like that's why new, new uh, bonded bodies keep popping up all the time and people wonder why they're being commoditized they're, mar- they're under margin pressure um, I, people often don't connect innovation to quality- Core issues in the organization. It's like the core issue in the organization, let's just bumble forward with that and, and throw a lot of people at it, versus the innovation side, which is, oh, well, that's nice, let's just do a press release. Whereas there are, I think now, the beginnings of mature offerings from Quarter, from Hyperledger, from Digital Asset, from um, Enterprise Ethereum Alliance, and many, many others, and, and even in the tokens space, from a, uh, from your, everything from your block stacks to your NEOs, that are worthless looking at seriously not just hey let's play with this but you know it's interesting to me that um ed budd who was um a, a md at Deutsche bank is now at consensus i, I think there are all some serious heavy hitters and thinkers in the banking space now taking the idea of working with tokens very seriously and um, i don't know that the uh, folks at swift have taken it as seriously as they should have but then I could be wildly underinformed, and I hope I am. And hopefully somebody from Swift can come and uh, talk to me and, and talk me around. Uh, and I would like that. In fact, I'll, I'll probably reach out to somebody and see what we can do. Alrighty, um, stories we didn't have time to cover coinbase apparently got help becoming more user-friendly according to business insider um they grabbed an ex-twitter exec to make it user-friendly i think it not crashing would be the most user-friendly thing they could probably do (laughs) that guys you made a billion this year come on um there's, uh, there's a story in Coindesk. Um, Michael Casey um, explores what a Facebook token might look like. Love a bit of Michael Casey. Um, if you ever get a chance to read any of his stuff on Coindesk, it always makes me think. Um, so, so definitely work a look. Um, also on Coindesk, some guy wrote a blog post called Don't Hoddle Buildle. I don't know even how you say that. How blockchain tech will add value in 2018. Um, the guy's name was Ajit Tripathi, and we love you, Ajit. Um, to, to be fair to Ajit, he consistently writes stuff that, if you look back at it 12 months later, actually is really smart. Um, he's just, uh, he's, he's such a troll um, that often it's hard to get past the troll and see how smart this man really, really is. So, I uh, would we'll check that out.
1: I, I thought you were going to end it as this man consistently writes stuff.
0: <laughs> he does he also consistently says stuff um which he, which he's good at uh, we love you d- we didn't have time to cover a story on medium um it's a whale tactics explainer which um i thought was really interesting about some orcas and how they deal with seals i was i was thinking that but no this is uh
1: <laughs> it's funny because it's actually got a picture uh, of orca. this is actually <laughs> much my-
0: <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear, Colin, when you laugh it sets me off and then Laura's laughing and now Petra's laughing. Um, Whales, of course, being people who have a lot of cryptocurrency, not the uh, sea mammal. Um, (laughs) I don't know why I found that funny. Alrighty, righty. Uh, Coindesk. Uh, Venezuela blasts false white paper for oil-backed cryptocurrency. So Venezuela be saying stuff. Um, and in Business Insider, shares in a telecoms comp- company jumped more than 130% after they pivoted to blockchain. No surprises there. All right. Uh, let us know what you think about any of these stories by getting in touch with us on, on Twitter at Insider. Let us know what you think about orcas, uh, regulators, um, the general general jesus window dressing um if you work at swift and you just want to kick us for for being mean to you please do because uh, we try and provide a fair platform we cover all these stories on fintechinsidernews.com as well so if there's stuff we should be covering that you think we've missed fintechinsidernews.com is the way to do it Um, and as a reminder 11fs the company that brings you this podcast help banks, asset managers, or anybody with a challenge in blockchain or DLT to really do stuff. Uh, If you want to understand how to commercialize any of this to get it real, to get it live, or just have a speaker for your next event, we hope you'll get in touch. Uh, You can find out more at 11fs.com. All right, next up, I spoke to the CEO of Bitflyer. Great. So we are here and I have the Wonderful. Good fortune. I've been joined by Yuzo and Andy from Bitflyer. Gentlemen, how are you? Very good. Thank Very you. Thanks. thanks for being on Blockchain Insider. So, uh, Yuzo, why don't you kick me off? Um, why don't do you tell me the story of how you founded Bitflyer and what is Bitflyer? Sure. Um, I used to work for Goldman Sachs as a trader. And
3: I knew the Bitcoin 2010 um, because there are actually some people um, brought, brought the Bitcoin to the trading floor. And I got interest. And then I rethought uh, to get into the uh, Bitcoin world in 2013. Uh, there was actually a comment by the Ben Banak. It's uh ex-FRB yes. chairman. He actually mentioned the uh, potential on the Bitcoin. And then the Bitcoin price hiked a lot
4: <laughs> since then. Interesting. And, and how about yourself, Andy? Gosh, I mean, I've been following Bitcoin since... Uh, 2013 seriously actually I f- that's a lie well, I first came across Bitcoin in 2012 mm-hmm. and I did what everyone else does and just completely dismissed it mm-hmm. this is just some like silly nerd money and then it was in 2013 that I read the Nakamoto white paper and then it just hit me like a tsunami and I was studying it like, furiously ever since then. But BitFlyer was my first professional venture into the space.
0: And how did you guys meet each other out of interest? How, when, did you start to work for BitFlyer? Did you found the company? What's the, what's the story? How did we begin?
3: Well, I actually founded the company in 2014 and then decided to make it a global company. Uh, but it took a while to <laughs> come to Europe. Yes. And for, uh, Europe, and then I was looking for the person who's heading the Europe, and then I met Andy. Fantastic,
4: so Andy, why don't you tell us what Bitflyer is and does, so all of the parts of the business. Yes. Sure, so you know, our, our mission is we make the world simpler through blockchain, so big mission, and we, we do that in many ways. Primarily, we help people buy, sell, and spend Bitcoin and other virtual currencies. So in Japan, we've got a kind of a B2C business where people can come um, create an account buy Bitcoin or other virtual currencies
0: with uh, the credit card or with... So this would look way. not dissimilar from Coinbase or Kraken or those would be your competitors in that space? Similar, yeah. yeah. So,
4: you know, the B2C element, you know, in that case, people are sort of trading. We're the counterparty to those trades. People are buying Bitcoin off us. Ah. Um, but, the you know, the, the main business is the, the more sophisticated trading platform, which we call Bitfly Lightning. Mm-hmm. And that's aimed at the more professional traders, let's say, who um, are expecting all of the advanced functionalities that someone say a Goldman might expect when they're trading Forex. And in that case, we have an open order book. So we're connecting buyers and sellers with each other. Um, We're we're not the counterparty, but we facilitate those trades. We've also got a payments arm where in Japan we're integrated with BitCamera, Camera, which is the largest electronics retailer in Japan, and also HIS. Is it the largest or second largest travel agent? Um, second largest. Second largest yeah. travel agent in Japan. Uh, so we've got some payment stuff going on, and in that case, people can go into shops and pay with Bitcoin
0: at the wow. point at the point of sale. So I want to follow up on that, Andy, because um, we'll come to your European ambitions in in, in a moment, but. It's interesting to me that uh, Japan has been very, you know, on the front foot, been very innovative when it comes to the subject of Bitcoin in terms of its regulation. Uh, so you were talking about you can use Bitcoin in stores and um, generally there is more regulation. Why, why do you think that is? I know you guys might have had something to do with that, for instance.
3: Um, I had been working with the regulators to establish a law uh, after the actually Mankao incident happened, I made the organization named the Japan Blockchain Association. And they also actually uh, forced their exchanges to their safe regulations. At the moment, actually, there was no regulations moment, but I believe that there's a need of the, some uh, regulations. Otherwise, uh, people are just randomly actually doing the Bitcoin with a KYC, know your clients, uh, which is kind of dangerous. So I spent um about three years uh to talk to the uh, um, the government, uh government agencies, uh, politicians, police, tacos office, anybody. And then finally we got the law in two thousand sixteen, May twenty fifth. The bill actually passed the
0: Congress. Wow. Yeah. So that that's some time ago and, and mm-hmm. so what's happened since then? Has it been seen as more legitimate and have Big companies been more open to it in the Japanese market. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like a big camera is
3: a first fast guy. Actually, who started the Bitcoin after the law has been established? So that was actually activated uh, April two thousand seventeen. Um, so people a lot about actually big company
4: trusted the Bitcoin because there's a law, uh-huh. law I think Japan is obviously a very like, clearly the the center of the world when it comes to Bitcoin still at the moment. And for me, the catalyst was Mt. Gox. You know, it, it, it collapsed catastrophically a few years ago, but it forced regulators to take a look. And I think that's one of the reasons that Japan is a few years ahead is that after Mt. Gox, they studied it closely. They thought about it. They had some some proper dialogue about what they should do about it. And they actually ended up issuing a new law to, to cover virtual currency exchanges. And this is, for me, part of the reason why Japan is such an
0: enticing market. That's so interesting that it took something bad happening in order to create a new law. But actually, they had the association uh, that Yuzo had created to talk to, to help them create the law. But Bitcoin's very international. Uh, It's much bigger than one country. So do you see uh, your role in what you've learned in Japan now being something that you can bring to the rest of the world? Um, It might be a good opportunity to talk about your European ambitions, for instance.
3: Yeah, it's international and no border. There's a lot of actually people believe I shouldn't create any rules, but it's kind of difficult. If there's no rule, the government should ban the the whole the virtual currencies of blockchain technology. That's why I uh, wanted to avoid. Uh, if there's actually certain rules uh, after the discussion with the regulators, then they're kind of comfortable having that uh, regulations and so we can still discuss uh what we should do and we what we shouldn't do especially for the uh, recently icos uh there's a huge discussion with the regulators and then we want to actually make some self-regulations to avoid
4: the huge trouble in the society completely you're right i mean i think we want to lead by example we want to become the global standard for exchanges and uh That's kind of why we're excited today to be announcing that with the addition of our license in the EU, we're we're the most compliant exchange in the world. So what is your license in the EU? So we were granted a license uh, officially signed off by the Minister of Finance for Luxembourg, but greenlit by the CSSF, which is uh, kind of the equivalent of the
0: FCA here in the UK. (laughs) So the both the minister and the regulator in Luxembourg, which is one of the largest institutional uh, jurisdictions in Europe, um, a lot of asset managers and assets based there, yeah. has signed off and said, yep, you, you're a regulated entity, which is really powerful because I think there is, there has been a mainstream narrative at the moment that Bitcoin's bad and ICOs are bad. There was a report from EY, I don't know if you saw, talking about the risks of ICOs. So do you think we can do a bit like you did with Bitcoin in Japan? Do you think the ICO space can be made cleaner with some with some good rules? And do you see yourselves being involved in that at all? In Europe? Uh, in europe or in japan
3: in japan yeah um we're thinking to actually drafting the uh, some f- safe regulations so hopefully the government shouldn't ban the whole icos mm-hmm. uh, we are actually thinking uh several categories under the uh, japanese legislations so falling down to the banking law payment method uh virtual currencies law prepaid, etc., et cetera. So we actually carefully actually sorting out the, uh, uh, what is UTT talking, What is security? What is token? What is ICO? What is virtual references? So we have a language yeah. that we share, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, and then, well, this actually falls down this law, et cetera, et cetera. So shouldn't, the, the people shouldn't actually believe the law, especially like some banking or money transmitter or securities law, uh, kind of strict so yes. uh, still actually working with the specialists or lawyers um, how we actually manage the ICOs
0: in Japan wow so that work is ongoing. Um, yes. And actually that means that if somebody were to uh, work with Bitflyer in the future, uh, then you would potentially have some roles which you were leading the way on, uh, helping that you're working with the regulators to build trust. But if somebody were to buy some tokens mm-hmm. from Bitflyer on the institutional side, they would have confidence that you've done it in a regulated way, or at least the most sensible way possible. And protect investors, um, try and protect, you know, have efficient and fair and transparent markets wherever possible
4: yeah as you can imagine we get approached by uh, groups or projects all the time asking us to list their new ICO or their new token on our exchange um but the approach we take I mean as I've said we we believe regulation is fundamental to the future of virtual currencies and so anytime we do consider adding a new token We will do it with the full cooperation of the regulator. For instance, in Japan, the JFSA, the Japan FSA has a a whitelist of kind of accredited or approved tokens. So, you know, we would be only ever using something on that list. And of course, we would discuss it with them first. Mm -hmm. And we would take the same approach in our other markets like US and EU.
0: Very interesting um, perspective. So, uh, what do you see as being kind of the the next step for uh, kind of the development of the cryptocurrency markets? Do you, you're, you you have lots of clients in the space on the institutional side? Do you think that after the market correction, that interest is going away, or do you see this as being something where there is a sustainable opportunity for um, investors beyond single family offices, but actually? deeper into the institutional sector to really work with yourselves? How do you, how do you see that in the next six months, 12 months, if, if you can share your thoughts? It's
3: kind of difficult to tell the future, <laughs> uh, but I'm just hoping that a lot of actually more people getting in, including the uh, institutional investors, to the, to the market because that actually makes the market more stable. Yes. Uh, because current situation is too volatile, uh, it's kind of impossible to use as a payment method. So um, more actually people coming in, I think there are more
0: volume uh, that creates a stability of the virtual currencies. Very interesting point. Uh, there's also a question though about infrastructure because an institutional investor would expect mature custodians, m- mature counterparties. There are some fairly well-known OTC desks now. There are some fairly strong exchanges, but a lot of what you'd expect around securities law from a registrar perspective is, is kind of missing. So ha- do you see the development of that infrastructure as well? And I guess you see yourselves as a crucial part of it, but do you see it out in the market? Uh, depends on the country. So, mm-hmm. For example, the
3: U.S. laws are actually very strict, and the people SEC are concerned that if it's a securities or not. In Japan, it's uh, different aspects because since we have the uh, virtual currencies law already, most of the, actually the uh, tokens actually falls into the uh, virtual
0: currency law, so we can we can design like that. Do you think that gives you the flexibility to design rules that are more appropriate to the underlying asset? than perhaps treating it as a security. Do you think there are benefits to that approach? In the Japanese legislation, um
3: doesn't matter if it's an underlying um, asset because it looks like if you actually wrap, for example, the Bitcoin mm. uh, with the ETF, this is considered a security. Ah, right. Yeah. So the underlying doesn't really matter for a uh, region. Interesting. Very um, interesting. If you actually trade the spot Bitcoin, this is falls under the, uh, the virtual currencies law. Uh, if you make near uh, ETF or any securities, then
0: it's a security. Uh, so it's, it depends on the, uh, the structure. Very interesting. Uh, so we've talked a lot about um, the kind of the institutional side. We briefly touched on the uh, kind of the consumer side. Um, but also there's the enterprise side. You know, enterprise blockchain and DLT has been big for a number of years. There's obviously Enterprise Ethereum Alliance. There's uh, R3. There's Hyperledger. Mm-hmm. Do you guys do anything in, in that space as well? Yes, we do. Uh,
3: we have, a propriety blockchain named Miyabi. That's actually, uh, we think it's really cool. It's a private chain, uh, that has, uh, uh immutability and the finality and the BFT and then no, uh, SPOF. Mm-hmm. So it's considered as a fully functional blockchain and, uh, which is very fast. Mm-hmm. So the Miyabi actually got nominated as a technical supporter. Uh, we actually got nominated as a second supporter of the Japanese Bankers Association, oh. which is kind of actually uh, uh, separate in Europe. So, um, I mean, running the uh, banking infrastructure, infrastructure wow. as well as Fujitsu Hitachi Entity Data. So we are kind of uh, only one startup uh, out of actually maybe twenty more than 20, 20 25
0: applications for that uh, POC. Wow. That's a that's a heck of a competition, you won there. Yeah. That's really good. So um on those three segments, mm-hmm. uh, where do you see kind of the focus for you um in in the future? Do you see more towards consumer, more towards institutional investing or more towards enterprise? Or do you think you have to be in all three to be successful? I think depends on the products. We have actually two
3: major uh, products, it's, um, the virtual currencies exchange and the blockchain. Yes. This is actually designed for the, uh, B2C. Yes. So mainly actually focusing on the consumer, including some actually, um, institutional, mm-hmm. uh, clients. But here, this is more like enterprise. Uh, since actually it's, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's designed for the securities. So it's, we are not really open
0: that to the, uh, for the consumer usage. Mm-hmm. So it's very closed. Yes, and so there would be enterprise clients using a yeah. closed blockchain. Where do you stand on banks having virtual currencies? There were some headlines about a year ago about Jcoin and the yeah. potential for banks using kind of their own virtual currency. Right. Do you think um, that's um, a good idea or a bad idea? Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts? I think it's a good idea. Um, there was
3: actually uh, news of MUFG coin mm-hmm. and the Jcoin mm-hmm. issued by Mizuho Bank. Uh, those are actually uh, two of the major uh, banks in Japan. Initially, uh, MEFG coin is considered as just uh, uh, linked to uh, Japanese yen. Yes. Uh, but recently there was news that the MEFG coin may fluctuate to the Japanese yen, then it falls under the virtual currency law. Wow. Meaning there's a lot of potential. You know Tether? Tether, yes. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's kind of the same, ah. but it's,
0: it's uh, backed by a bank. Wow. Um, so, tether backed by a bank is a really exciting concept. Yeah. Um, an MUFG coin probably isn't con- tether backed by a bank. Is not how it's been advertised, but it's a really interesting way to think y- about it. Yeah. It's so easy. You,
3: you, you don't have, have to actually use your banking network anymore to transfer oh. the MUFG
0: coin. Love that. That's really exciting me. Like the, so I love the concept of Tether, except for the fact that they've gone into competition with the uh, Federal Reserve, which mm-hmm. is probably not a good idea. Um, but, but the idea of a bank issuing it, well, banks have always, um, under fractional reserve been allowed to issue mm-hmm. national currency. They are given a banking license to mm-hmm. do yeah. exactly that. It's a, it's a really interesting idea. So what are the benefits to banks and consumers of, of something like that? And, and could they be looking at private blockchains to help them do that? Like uh, Miabi, for instance, I'm um, not very sure uh, what kind of blockchain they are using for the MFC coin, uh, but they're going to actually use a blockchain for sure. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and so when um, people are looking to use uh, Miabi, what sort of projects are they using uh, Miabi for? I mean, recently actually we
3: made some alliance with their uh, large uh, point issue. Point is very actually common in japan that you can get points by buying something so, so it's like a mine. loyalty rewards point yeah. scheme thing yeah so people can use these points as a currency right so they won't actually swap the points uh they won't actually run the points on the blockchain so they uh, are thinking to actually use a uh, miyabi mm-hmm. uh, as an infrastructure
4: that's really cool so it's, it's interesting because in japan that they uh unlike here in the uk where all of the sort of loyalty point schemes that you come across are usually very siloed. Like, you know, you've got your Cafe Nero loyalty card. You've got one sort of system per shop. Whereas in Japan, they um, there are sort of two really big uh, schemes where you get sort of Ponto, I think, and and T-Points tea, tea or... tea point Yeah, yeah. And loads of shops just accept them. So for years already, even before blockchain, Japanese people were kind of
0: earning these points and spending them in all sorts of different places. So it's kind of a different framework, different way of thinking of it. So you've got an advantage there that you've got consumers who understand that behavior already, Mm. but now you've got a different technology potentially reducing cost or making them easier to move around. Mm. So I've done some work in the loyalty and card space before, Mm. and I'm aware that one of the key things for any loyalty um, scheme is that if you're giving somebody points, mm-hmm. in order for it to be profitable, you have to cover your costs first, mm-hmm. and then you want them to redeem for an item that's less than the amount that, in theory, they've spent and been made for you by by being loyal. Uh, and so, by taking your costs out, if you're using old infrastructure and if you have a, a network of partnerships, maybe you work with an airline and some sports clubs. The technical integration between all of those old legacy IT systems tends to be slow and expensive and take a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And the idea here is this shared infrastructure of a, a permissioned blockchain potentially reduces some of that cost, but also means that you could take those points and trade them on an exchange uh, and get real cash for them. So it gives the consumer some, some new ideas that, that I think is interesting. Really powerful ideas. So where can people find out more about Bitflyer? What have you guys got coming up in the future?
4: So, I mean, the, so the big news today, of course, is that we've just, uh, you know, we've just launched in the EU and, and making us the world's most compliant exchange after winning our uh, license from the CSSF. We've got lots of plans for the future. Of course, uh, we'll be adding new uh, coins and new currencies in, in the future, but um, you know, always be checking with the regulator first. And of course, when we announce those things, you'll be the first to know. Uh, one of the more interesting things, which I discussed today in the keynote actually, was this idea of cross-border trading. So of course, the interesting thing about Bitflyer is that we are the dominant marketplace in Japan. We have 70, 80% market share in Japan. And Japan in turn is the biggest market for Bitcoin in the world. So that's why we're sort of global number one. Um, and of course, that's a really deep liquid market. And uh, now that we've got users in the US and, and the EU, offering that kind of liquidity to those customers is incredibly attractive. So our plan is to connect our order books together. And that would basically allow people in the U.S. to trade with Japan, people in the EU to trade with Japan, and of course people in the EU and the U.S. to trade together. So that's something exciting that's
0: in the pipeline for us. Wow, that's really, really exciting. So bitflyer.com to learn more? bitflyer.com forward
4: slash en dash eu for the EU page, or of course, bitcoin.com will get you on on the
0: Japan page so you can have a look around. Fantastic. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being on Blockchain Insider. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. A big thank you to our interviewees at Bitflyer. And also a big thank you to Addy and, of course, my regular co-host, Colin G. Platt himself. How are you, Colin? Are you feeling like you've done the week proud, that you've talked about window dressing and that you're ready for the next week next to a field, um, then you can become a legitimate French citizen?
1: I, I hope that I will become a legitimate French person.
0: Uh, well you, you definitely have the attitude down. that's for sure of course I'm tongue in cheek we love French people I don't wish to be mean in any way um, alright thank you Colin and thank you to our amazing production team here at 11FS Laura Watkins our producer Michael Bailey our editor and our assistant producer Petrit, who doesn't turn his microphone off uh, alright thank you for listening if you like what you heard subscribe to our podcast leave us a review on iTunes tell your friends about what we do um, and spread the word uh, we'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. But for now, goodbye. Laura Watkins, our producer. Michael Bailey, our magician. Our magician? Our magician. <laughs> Fucking hell, what's going on? All right, thank you, Colin. Uh, big thank you to our amazing production team here at 11FS. Laura Watkins, our <laughs> <laughs> It was the orcums. It's all, it's all the orcas full. <laughs> 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 oh, shit!
1: There was a picture right. of <laughs> <laughs> Did you see it before you said that?
0: Just don't. Stop. Stop on that. We'll, we'll never get out of here. All oh, right. Okay. <laughs> get the laughs out. la, la. La.